The following message is from the Church at Greer Station. For more information, visit tcgreerstation.com. So who in here, by show of hands, is scared of the dark? Is anyone scared of the dark? Okay, there, there, there are a few around. Zach is very afraid of the dark. Double, double hands for Zach. Thank you, Zach. Why is that? Why, why are we afraid of the dark? Why are, why are people afraid of the dark? Well, there, there's kind of a, an air of, of mystery that comes to the dark. In the light, we can kind of see everything. We can see everything that's taking place in this whole room. But if it's dark, it's, there's a little bit of mystery that comes. Terrible things happen in the dark, and then people just become emboldened in the dark. I don't know if that's ever happened to you. It's happened to me, definitely in, in certain, certain times, and uh, maybe when I was younger, definitely just become a little bit more emblazoned to maybe do something that uh, would hurt somebody or, or make fun of someone or whatever. The, the dark kind of covers that. There's a, there's a study that, that should be on the screen that, that shows that kind of basic level uh, crimes are mostly committed in the day. So things like drug violations, petty theft, simple assaults, property crimes. Now obviously these things are, are terrible and horrible, but they mostly take place in the day, in the light. But then in the night, there, there seems to be more serious, um, obviously all of these crimes are serious, but, but maybe how we'd, we'd rank them out to be more serious. The, the, the night is when these things take place. Murder, Sexual assault, robbery, and then you know things like driving while impaired. These things happen at night. In many ways, the, our humanity, or humanity at large, loves the cover of darkness. Darkness allows us to kind of stay in our bubble. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 19. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. Darkness is bad in the scriptures, the way it is portrayed. It represents sin and depravity, wickedness, stumbling. But light is portrayed as, as that which is good. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 and 6. The, the message that we heard, we have heard, is that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, while we walk in sin, while we walk Really, in death, we lie and do not practice the truth. Darkness represents separation from God. It, it represents death. And that's why we have the, the holy of holies, the most holy place in the temple where God's presence is separated from his sinful people. He's separated from the darkness. So our question is, what, what happens to the darkness? Our question for tonight, what, what's going to happen to the darkness? What's happened to the darkness in the past, and what happens to the darkness that we're even handling now? So we really get the height of darkness in our passage. Matthew chapter 27, verse 45. Let's read uh, through verse 50. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, 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 leme sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, 
Why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. So what happens to this darkness, to this separation from God, to to death, to sin? Well, the first thing is that Jesus enters the darkness. Jesus enters the darkness. We see this in, in verses 45 through 50. Now, how exactly does Jesus go about entering the darkness? I'm going to offer you three ways. Verses 45 and 46, Jesus is forsaken by God. Jesus is forsaken by God. This is how he has entered the darkness. So a day starts in in ancient Israel, a day starts at 6 a.m. So that would be kind of hour zero. So then in, in according to Mark um, chapter 15, at uh, the third hour, Jesus is put on the cross. So the third hour would be about 9 a.m. So kind of mid-morning, Jesus is crucified. Jesus is put on the cross. And then our passage here tonight, from the sixth hour, so the sixth hour would be noon, really the height of light, when light should be portrayed everywhere, when it's the brightest, when the sun should be directly overhead. What's the case? There's total darkness. And this is really the first remarkable event. We're going to see a number of remarkable events in our, in our passage tonight. Is this darkness. And really it's a picture of Jesus' identity. God's portrayal of Jesus' identity. His hatred of sin. We're going to talk more about why Jesus has to be crucified. There's cosmic significance to this supernatural darkness. It's displaying God's displeasure and judgment upon humanity for their sin and for the crucifixion. Again, darkness represents evil, sin, brokenness, judgment. Joel chapter 2 is, is, a, is a chapter that talks about the day of the Lord, this judgment that's coming, it's near. And it uses language like thick darkness and gloom, clouds, flames burning, and wilderness. And then Joel chapter 2, verse 10, you're going to see similar language to what happens in our verses. The earth quakes before them. Remember, this is the day of judgment, the day of the Lord. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. And then Joel chapter 2, verse 11, the Lord executes his word. His judgment is great and very awesome. And they ask, Joel asks, who can endure it? And no human is able to endure the judgment of God. Amos chapter 8, verse 9 is going to talk about kind of a similar day, this day of bitter mourning, of judgment that is coming. And it says, on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. So Jesus, this this occurrence of him on the cross and darkness at noon is fulfilling prophecies from the Old Testament. And then verse 46, he's on the cross until the ninth hour, so 3 p.m., about three hours, that then this, this cry out comes. And he cries out Psalm 22, 
verse 1. Psalm 22 is an important chapter to kind of put in the back of your head, to kind of store away for uh, kind of the messianic predictions. Jesus cries out this cry of dereliction, essentially that he's been abandoned, he has been neglected. Jesus is in despair. He seems to be unheard and unseen by the Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, the Son of God who has, etern- who has had eternal communion with the Father, now feels like there's just this big curtain between him and the Father. Communion has been lost and he's been abandoned. Verses 47 through 49, Jesus is mocked. So remember, Jesus enters the darkness. And how does he do it? We, we see him be mocked. So there are these bystanders that are standing around according to, to verse 47. They're there because this is almost like a source of entertainment. Jesus is crucified. Jesus has nails in his hands, nails in his wrist. He's gasping for breath. He's coming to a brutal end. And these bystanders are just watching on. It's almost a, a source of entertainment. Pain, death, battles, gruesomeness. It's gladiators were so popular because of this. When we think about today, how, how easy it is for us. Now, maybe, maybe if we were seeing someone crucified, we would get away as quickly as possible. But kind of darkness and, and kind of danger and something kind of bad happening, we're, we're drawn to. When, when we see fire trucks and police uh, cars and um, ambulances, terrible events, it's almost like we can't look away. We're so drawn in, and these bystanders are drawn in to this, to this wretchedness that is happening. Verse 48, we, we get another fulfillment of Psalm 69, verse 21. So Psalm 22 and Psalm 69 are key kind of messianic passages. Jesus is given poison for food and sour wine to drink for thirst. Now it might seem like this is a friendly offer of mercy. The, these bystanders are giving him the sour wine. The sour wine was common to, to the to people around and to soldiers, it was cheap and it quenches thirst. But this is actually not a compassionate act. It's helping prolong Jesus' life and agony. Luke 23 verse 36 talks about that the soldiers mock Jesus by giving him sour wine. They're prolonging his agony. They're prolonging his life. And then the, they show this false piety, these, these bystanders. They, they say, don't give him the drink. Let's, let's wait to see if Elijah rescues him. They, they're, they're thinking Elijah might rescue him. In verse 46, and, and we can read it in, in our translations, Eli, Eli, or Eloi, Eloi. They, they're thinking he's talking about Elijah, this, this famous Old Testament prophet. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 tells us that, that Elijah needed to come before the Lord. But John, the John the Baptist is the one who has fulfilled this. But obviously these guys are going to neglect that. Matthew chapter 11 verses 13 and 14, Jesus says, "For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come." So Elijah is not going to come save Jesus. Elijah has already come in the form of John the Baptist. They think Jesus Needs saving and that he cannot save himself. That was verse 42 from last week. Now, how else does Jesus enter the darkness? Maybe one of, one of the saddest verses we see in verse 50 Jesus dies. 
Jesus is not saved from the cross. He cries out again and he yields up his spirit. This is idiomatic of death for for a Jew. As soon as uh, breath has left uh, their lungs, as soon as there's no longer able to, to function physically, then the spirit would leave the body. So he's yielded up his spirit. Hope is lost. There is nothing sadder for the disciples. Their perceived promised Messiah is dead. Darkness has won. What hope is there? Jesus has yielded up his spirit. But thanks be to God, this is not where the passage ends. Jesus has entered into the darkness. Let's see what he does in verses 51 through 56. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. We have arrived at the climax of the last four years. Trevor told me this past week we started Matthew uh, in uh, fall of 2017. I've, I've been here two years. I told him it feels like, you know, talking to you guys, we've probably been in Matthew for 20 years. Uh, we've just been working our way through Matthew so richly, and we are at the climax. And what happens now that Jesus has died? What happens to the darkness? Verses 51 through 56 tells us that Jesus destroys the darkness. Jesus destroys the darkness. Now, how does he destroy this darkness? There's three key ways that I see in these, in these verses. First, and there's some irony. Remember last week with Trevor, irony was the name of the game. There's so much irony. These, these are all ironic. The one forsaken, Jesus, gives access to God. The one forsaken, the one who has been abandoned, gives access to God. There's almost this passing statement in verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What does that mean? You know, is that important? We can just kind of pass on and keep, keep reading it. But this is almost the most remarkable event that takes place in these verses. There's darkness, there's rock splitting, there's earth shaking, there's people being raised from the dead. But the curtain being torn in two is absolutely vital, is absolutely beautiful. Jesus tears down, rips the curtain. Now this curtain is, separates God from sinful humanity. This curtain was only to be accessed, only to, to, we, somebody was to only go past it. It was the chief, chief high priest once a year. The curtain blocked the, the normal area of worship in the temple from the Holy of Holies. And the chief high priest was only supposed to enter it on the Day of Atonement. And he was to carry sacrifices, bulls, and goats to pay for everyone's sin and to avert God's wrath. 
Sinful man cannot be in the presence of God. So this curtain was required. God's presence dwells in the holy of holies. And he needs to be blocked from sinful humanity. But verse 51 makes clear that the curtain, this dividing wall, has been torn in two. Wrath has been averted. We have access to God that is now freely given. The presence of God is available for us in this room. We got to pray. We've gotten to pray a few times so far. We are able to go before God because the curtain has been torn into, the separation has been removed. Hebrews chapter 9 and 10, that is just the heart and focus of those two chapters. Would encourage you to maybe read that tonight or, or in the coming days this week. The tearing shows the success of Jesus' cross work. This curtain is thick, it is heavy. It is not able to be torn by man. It is as thick as our hands, as a man's hands. It is thick. It is 30 feet wide, 60 feet tall. It's huge. But Jesus, showing this cry of anguish in verse 46, has taken the full weight of divine condemnation. Jesus has experienced God-forsakenness for the salvation of his people. And the curtain has been torn in two. The cross shows the horror of this world's sin and the cost of salvation. There is both pain and beauty on the cross. Jesus by himself carries the weight of sin. He is condemned. He is separated from the Father. Death is poured out on Jesus. And what is the result? The curtain is torn. We can be with God. We are free from wrath and condemnation. Jesus has redeemed us. The one forsaken gives access to God. How else does Jesus destroy the darkness? Verses, uh, the second half of verse 51 through verse 53. The one who died raises the dead. So Jesus has died. He's been crucified. He's been killed. He's no longer breathing. He is the one who raises the dead. And it's going to be beautiful over the next two weeks to get to talk about the resurrection and what Jesus has called his people to. The earth shakes, rocks split, tombs are opened, and believers are raised. These are believers from the Old Testament time and from the, the intertestamental time. So the, the end of the Old Testament, Malachi is written in the, in the mid-400s B.C. And so there's about 400, 450 years until Jesus' life, um, you know, around zero. And so these people that are, that are raised have trusted in the Messiah who is to come. They've gone to Sheol, this, this realm of the dead, this place. They've gone to the, the place of blessing in Sheol, awaiting the resurrection. In Sheol, there would be a place of blessing and a place of curse. And so these, these people who are, are believers have been able to go to the place of blessing, awaiting Jesus' resurrection. And Ephesians chapter 4, verses 8 through 10 makes clear that when Jesus is ascended, Acts chapter 1 these guys get to go with him to heaven. Matthew shows that the resurrection of people who lived before Jesus Christ, who died, and who lived before the promised Messiah, 
Their faith, their resurrection is as dependent on Jesus' triumph over death as those who come after him. For you, like you and like me. The believers that come from, from Acts through the rest of the New Testament, believers in Greer, Nova Scotia, Kenya, wherever, for all of time after Jesus' death, we are as reliant upon Jesus' triumph over death as those who came before Jesus. Jesus has conquered death. He has given new life. This is a foretaste of Christ's return. We get a signal here of the death of death, of the undoing of all of sin. Now, Matthew isn't exactly telling a linear story. He immediately jumps in these verses to Jesus's resurrection, but then next week we're going to get language about Jesus being buried. So he's not telling a, a linear story. He's jumping to the resurrection. He's telling the story thematically. And he's showing that, that after Jesus's resurrection, these, these believers from the Old Testament, from the intertestamental time, have been raised, they've come out, and they appear to these people. It's kind of crazy to think about these dead saints. The language is saints or holy people. These guys are walking, these men and women, they're walking around Jerusalem. Now there is great evidence of this actually taking place. Now in some ways and sometimes some people are going to think, I'm up here, I'm just telling you a nice fable. I'm just telling you a nice story. I've just told you a beautiful little fictional story about kind of resurrection and life and um, being, you know, hope and, and joy. But this is not a fictional story. This is an actual event that has taken place about 2,000 years ago. Trevor and I talked this past week. Um, we, we have a podcast that, that we are kind of continuing to revamp and we're looking at, we've been doing it about once a month. We're going to put it out about once every two weeks is, is the hope going forward. It's called All of the Above. We're going to do a, a podcast on the historicity of these events. This Matthew chapter 26 through 28 is just loaded with beauty that we can't necessarily spend all the time in, in sermons talking about, but would encourage you uh, over the next, next month or two, we'll, we'll put that out and we'd encourage you to listen to that. Also, one thing that we have started this week, just as a, as a side note, in your bulletin, on the back where there are sermon notes, at the very bottom, we've put a, a QR code and put a website. Um, Trevor and I, and hopefully we'll get some of the other pastors in there as well, uh, about once a month, we'll uh, do a pastor's talk back. We did that um, kind of during the height of COVID when we had everything online, where you can ask a question about something, something I've said, something Trevor says, somebody, uh, Jim or Zach or Josh or whoever's preaching up here says and it just sends you to a website and you can just ask your question and it's anonymous it'll come to, to us and we'll we'll talk about it we want to to deal with the questions that you have and I know this passage especially is just it's just loaded with questions that that I wish I could address all of them and be as clear as possible but uh, would love for you to to ask any questions that you have now what are we to do as a result of Jesus entering and destroying the darkness. We see in verses 54 through 56, the one mocked is the only one worthy of worship. Jesus has been mocked. He's been mocked over and over and over again, chapters 26 and 27. And he's the only one worthy to be worshiped. The centurion, these, these guys around him, they've seen the darkness. They've seen this curtain torn in two. The earth is shaken, the rocks have split, they've seen so much taking place. And because of that, they are filled with fear and terror. 
And then they rightly proclaim, truly, this was the Son of God. This was the Son of God. And then there are these faithful women who have been with Jesus for a long time, who are now present at his death, and they continue to minister and to serve him. It's kind of crazy to think there's, there's Mary, there's a couple of Marys, there's Jesus' mother, Mary, and then there's a Joseph. We're going to have a Joseph, is verse 57, the first verse of our passage for next week. Joseph of Arimathea, who's going to help bury Jesus. There's a Mary and Joseph present at his birth and present at his death. This, this, this name, the Son of God language, Jesus is, is seen and worshipped for who he is, the Son of God. <clears throat> and ultimately, this is what we're doing here tonight. This is what we do week after week when we gather, when we're in our community groups, when we're sitting over coffee, when we're doing late night phone calls and we're just wrestling with sin, we're wrestling through what the Lord is doing. When we are gathered here, the ecclesia, gathering of the church, we're just a bunch of centurions, women, bystanders, a whole motley crew of normal people worshiping Jesus as the Son of God. And why do we do that? Because he is worthy. How do we do that? The only way we are able to worship, the only way we are able to be here tonight, Trevor reminded us at the beginning, God has called us here to worship. The only way we're able to do that is because the curtain has been torn in two. We have access to God. This is the reason we pray in Jesus' name. This is the reason we sing his praises. The curtain has been torn in two. We have been given access to the holy triune God. So what are we to, to take away from tonight? We kind of want to encourage you with, with two things. And again, this is the, these passages, I've said it to my group, and maybe I've even said it up here a couple of weeks ago. This passage is not loaded with don't be angry or, you know, the, all of these practical how-tos of how we are to live our life. This passage is filled with the beauty of the person and work of Jesus Christ. So let us both know what these, these, these principles that I'm going to share and, and, and try to embrace them and see them in our lives. Jesus has entered and destroyed the darkness. Jesus has entered and destroyed the the darkness. And because of that, I encourage you, see and worship him, the son of God. Jesus, the one who saves his people from their sins. We are sinners to our very core, each and every one of us. And our sin must be paid for. We must be made right before God. The wrath of God is on us. But Jesus, the sacrifice once and for all times, has torn the curtain, has allowed us communion with the Father. His shed blood is the perfect and final payment for all of our sins. Find hope and find joy in this. The wrath of God has finally and permanently been averted from Jesus' people. There's no sacrifices required, no mediating priests that have to go give the bulls and the goats and sacrifice them and pray on our behalf. We have access to God through the sacrificial death and resurrection. So I encourage you tonight, take Jesus, delight in Jesus, trust in him. 
Now imagine, Jesus cries, My God, my God, I am forsaken. Why have you forsaken me? So that for all of eternity, Aaron Markham, Bridget Farrell, Elisa Bridger, Harrison Schmid, Critter, will not have to. We don't have to cry out, my God, I am forsaken. We never cry the same cry as Jesus. It has been cried for us. In Christ, Jesus bears God's wrath alone. He's dejected, weeping the bitterest of tears. And Jesus fulfills God's will and swallows death. John chapter 1 verse 5 says that Jesus has overcome the darkness with light. The darkness has been destroyed. And this is really the heart of Christianity. Week after week, we gather and we talk about that Jesus has taken the punishment for you and for me. This is the gospel according to Matthew. The gospel, the good news about Jesus' life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. That he has conquered death. Jesus was cut off from fellowship with the Father on the cross so that we might be redeemed and to come into fellowship with our God. We are not a religion of doing good works to earn God's love. We're a people where God himself, Jesus is given the name Emmanuel in Matthew chapter 1, God with us. God himself pays for our sin. We get to respond in joy with worship, obedience, and delight. Jesus has entered and destroyed the darkness. See and worship him, the son of God. I want to close this, our, our time. Um, I'm, going to, I'm going to read from Isaiah 53. I want to read the, that, that whole passage and just see the beauty of what was predicted to come. This is written 600, 700, 800 years prior to Jesus coming. And just listen to the words, listen to the language that we've been receiving over the last few weeks tonight from Matthew. And hear these words from Isaiah 53. I'm going to read this and then I'll pray. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, the punishment that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. 
Yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercessions for the transgressors. Our holy God, we come before you tonight humbled by the good news of the gospel, blown away by the wretchedness of the cross, the forsakenness that that Jesus experiences, that you experience on our behalf, nails in your hand, nails in your feet and in your ankles, gasping for breath, being crucified, crushed for our iniquities, pierced for our transgressions. Our sin is what puts you on the cross, Lord Jesus. We deserve to be forsaken and separated from our God. And yet you have offered redemption. You were despised and rejected by men. You were a man of sorrows. You were acquainted with grief. You were despised and we esteemed you not. We continue to walk in sin. Father, I pray tonight that you would help us to repent and turn from our sin, to delight in Jesus, to worship Jesus, the one who took the punishment that we deserve and brought us peace By his wounds, we are healed. Jesus, you have borne all of our iniquities. Every terrible thought, every terrible deed, the passions of the flesh that we pursue has been poured out upon you. I pray that we would find hope and joy that Jesus is Lord and Savior and that we would live in accordance with that and that we would worship because of who you are. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would change our hearts. Lord, I need to be refreshed more than anyone in this room. I am the worst of sinners. And yet my sin has been paid for. You have borne the sin of many. Jesus, you are the one who now makes intercession for our transgressions. Let that be our hope and our joy. And I pray that you would help us to worship you, our Lord and our Savior.